0: Well, I am cheap. So if I go somewhere, like a national park or a museum, I almost never pay for the tour guide. Something in me will not let me pay for information that I can get from Wikipedia. But, but at the same time, if I happen to be in the vicinity of one of those guides, as I'm walking through, I might or might not stand kind of close, <laughs> just close enough to be able to hear them, but not, not close enough, or rather far enough away, uh, so that it looks like I'm not actually listening. And every time I do that, I think, yeah, this would have been a lot more interesting, and I would know what was going on if I'd paid that extra $20. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to walk through the text like a living museum, Verse by verse as we go along, and I'm going to be your tour guide, and hopefully you'll be able to see some things in the text that the author has for us that you would not have otherwise seen just in a simple reading sitting by yourself, okay? So open your Bible, Genesis 29, we're going to start in verse 1, and you're going to want to see the words that are on the page because we don't put them on the screen for you anymore. We, we, we really are want, wanting to train you. To, to see God's Word and, and see the richness of it. So we'll start in Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. All right, now it's been a little while, but let's get our biblical geography reoriented In creation, we have, at the very beginning of Genesis, the land of Eden. And in Eden, there is a garden on a mountain where lots of rivers are flowing from it. And that is where the the presence of the Lord is, and that is where the tree of life is. Now, after the fall, Adam and Eve were expelled eastward from the garden and into the Eden metropolitan region. And there was a gate put at the east side of the garden with cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the tree of life so they couldn't get back in. That's the first time we see east in the Bible. And symbolically, the further one goes eastward from the garden, the further one goes into the dwelling place of man or the worldliness of the world. And the closer you get to the garden, the closer you get to the dwelling place of the glory of God. So, keeping going with Genesis, after Cain's sin, you see that action again. After Cain sins, he's exiled east, further east of Eden, and he establishes his kingdom out there in the east. And there in the east, Cain's people invented polygamy. That's a hint of what is to come. The Tower of Babel was also in the east, and after the Tower of Babel, God appeared to Abraham in the east and said, get out of here, the east, and go west. He points him westward, so Abraham sojourns westward to Canaan, where the promised land and the dwelling place of the glory of God is or will be. And as the story goes on, we see more eastward stuff. Sodom and Gomorrah, where faithless Lot chose to live, that was east of the land of promise. It was kings from the east that kidnapped Lot, and Abraham had to war off and send back to where they came from. The sons of Abraham's concubines were sent east, away from Isaac, who's the child of promise. So it's not accidental, here in verse 1, that Moses... Led by the Spirit, our narrator, says here, Jacob has arrived with the people of the east. Rather than saying Jacob has arrived in Paddan Aram or Haran, he's giving us a one-word spiritual analysis of the setting, a lens to read the rest of this chapter. Jacob is not in Kansas anymore. He's not in the God-fearing Bible Belt anymore. He is in the wild, wild east. And he's about to find out the hard way that as savvy as he is, he is now like a homeschool kid who just moved into a frat house. <laughs> so let's look at verse 2. So that's the setting that we get. He's in the east. As he looks, look at verse 2. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. Now the last time someone in Paten, went to Sat- Paddan Aram looking for a wife, that's what uh, Jacob's doing here, the last time we saw this, it was Abraham's servant, looking for a wife for Isaac. And he found her, by the grace of God, at a well. And it's a beautiful story of God's provision of a bride for the offspring of Abraham. And Jacob knows this story. Like, this is his origin story. This is where mom came from. So you can imagine that his heart skips a beat when he sees that well out on the horizon as he's coming into the the land. Later on in Scripture, Moses will meet his wife at a well. Climactically, in the book of John, Jesus meets the sinful woman who is representative of all of us at the well. The wells in the Bible show the provision of God. Jacob knows that. So now the scene is set. Jacob's approaching the well. Don't forget, it's a well in the wild, wild east, and the scene builds. Verse 2 continues, And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Now the sense here is that this stone covering the well is too large for any one man to lift himself. It takes at least a few shepherds to move it, and they all know that. They've all come to realize that, so they all come to the watering hole at about the same time in order to make sure that everyone in the region or everyone in that neighborhood, all of the sheep are watered. Already, at least three shepherds are there. We know that because there are at least three flocks there, and they're hanging out, they're chewing the cud, and they're waiting on the others to come, and here comes small-town Jacob. Look at verse 4, Jacob sees them. He said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now Jacob's getting excited, isn't he? This is, this is royal, really, this is going this to be exactly like When Abraham's servant found a wife for Isaac, there's a well, there's a shepherdess coming to the well providentially at the exact same time that he has showed up. It couldn't get any better. God really is providing for Jacob. God's promises that we read of last week in Bethel, they're coming to fruition for Jacob. And then Jacob opens his mouth. And we are reminded very quickly That this is a very different scene than when the godly servant, trusting in the providence of God, following the angel of God, found a wife for Isaac. This is Jacob, and he's being Jacob. So it's probably not going to turn out the same way as it turned out for Isaac. Look at what he says to the strangers he has just met, mind you. Look at verse 7. This is Jacob speaking. He says, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot. Until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep. Now, I don't know Jacob's motivation for saying what he said. Some speculate that Jacob sees these guys at the well, he sees Rachel coming from afar, and so he's just doing whatever he can to get these guys to leave the well, so he can have some private time with this cousin of his. It could also be that he was so appalled by the inefficiency in their shepherding practices that he had to say something. They're, 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 They're not grazing their sheep when it's daylight, as they should be, so the sheep aren't getting fat, as they should be. The shepherds argue their case. And and the way that I hear what the shepherds say back to Jacob politely is, look, buddy, you might do things differently where you come from. But we have our way of shepherding here, and it's the way that we've done it for a long time. And we water all of our sheep at the same time. And maybe they're doing that because of the weight of the heavy stone. Maybe it takes all of them to move it, uh, and they just haven't thought of another way to get water Uh, They have to do that at the agreed-upon time. It could just be convenient. It could be just tradition. This is the way their fathers and grandfathers did their shepherding, so this is the way they do it. But the point here is that shepherding, or what we might call husbandry, is done differently here in the East than where Jacob comes from. Speaking of shepherding and husbandry, here comes Rachel, which in her name means lamb, You, lamb, female lamb. Verse 9 While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. He's showing them, look, guys, this stone does not take multiple shepherds to move. You just need a little bit of motivation, you lazy bums. So the hero grabs the stone, rolls it away, and provides water for the flock. Now, that should—if you—if you know the New Testament—that should oh, little light bulbs are going off in your mind, aren't they? We will see this fulfilled in the New Testament when the promised Messiah, the offspring of Abraham, enclosed in death behind a stone, is freed from death according to the promises of God, and in the resurrection brings the water of life to the flock. Of God. Drink of this water, you will never thirst again. The, uh, the, the point here is the gospel writers, when they wrote what they wrote, they knew exactly what they were doing. When they talked about a stone being rolled away from Jesus' tomb, in addition to showing us that Jesus really was dead and buried before he rose again, they were showing us that Jesus is the promised offspring of Jacob. He's the Messiah. But before we can get to Jesus, we have to meet Laban. Before the gospel comes the law. Laban is like a mirror image of Jacob. Laban, you're about to meet him. He's like a mirror image of Jacob. Everything that Jacob is, Laban is. Everything that Jacob has done to others, Laban will do to Jacob. God is going to reveal to Jacob just how sinful Jacob is through showing Jacob how sinful Laban is. And the purpose of this, this interchange that we are about to to read, the purposes of of this, is very very much like what Paul teaches us about the law in Galatians. The law was given to Israel to reveal to them their own sin. Jacob is going to be imprisoned here in Pat and Aram, but it's really by his own doing, his own choice, his own desires. But at the same time, God's purposes will be met through all of what happens here. God is going to shape Jacob and teach him the same thing that the law teaches us, that God's blessing comes by grace and not by our striving. It's better to trust in God and to trust in God's promises than to trust in yourself because we are untrustworthy. We are like Laban, and Laban's a bad guy. So, this is the starts, this interaction with Laban, the Jacob-Laban mirror starts in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Then Jacob, so remember Rachel has just showed up, Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. You see the mirrored action here? Jacob kisses Rachel as a greeting. It's just a family greeting. It's not not anything sexual. He kisses Rachel and tells her, I'm your father's nephew. Rachel runs to tell Laban, your nephew is here. Laban runs to Jacob and kisses him. See, the action it has gone full circle. Jacob has met his match, the fellow kisser. Verse 13 goes on, Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Now, There's more setup here explaining how Laban is the mirror to Jacob. Jacob tells Laban his life story. When he says all these things, that's what the text means. He's telling him his life story, including how he ended up out here in the east and how he's running from Esau because of his trickery and so on. Laban hears all of this and he says, nephew, we are definitely related. You're just like me. We're cut from the same cloth. You are my bone and my flesh. And Jacob stays with him for a month, helping him out on the farm, earning his keep until the point where, where Laban sees Jacob's work and he sees his efficiency and decides, if this guy is going to stay with me, I'm going to get something more out of this. And he begins to lay the snare, and that's what we see, see happening in verse 15. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me. What shall your wages be? This sounds generous. And it's meant to sound generous. But Laban has the upper hand, and he knows it. He knows that Jacob has come to and Aram for a wife. And he, because Jacob told him his whole life story. He knows everything about Jacob. And he's also noticed the way that Jacob's eyes linger when he looks at daughter Rachel. And a street smart businessman Let's the buyer make the first offer, as Laban does here. Maybe Jacob will offer a much better deal than Laban had been planning to offer himself. And verse 16 kind of begins to shape this for us. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, the ESV translation that I'm working from says Leah's eyes are or were weak. But you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says that that word that we translate weak could also mean her eyes were gentle or her eyes were soft. The King James Bible says Leah had tender eyes, so, so what we are to see is either Leah is pretty because she has attractive, welcoming eyes that draw you in, and Song of Solomon talks about this. He talks about the, the girl whose eyes are like doves, these gentle, soft eyes. Or it could be that, that Leah's eyes are weak, which is to say her eyes lack that, that sparkle. You know what I'm talking about? That they don't have the fire. But it doesn't matter whether she's pretty or not, because she's not Rachel, Whether Leah has pretty eyes or not, Rachel has both the pretty face and a beautiful form. And Rachel, in Jacob's opinion, has the whole package. She's something to look at, and he cannot stop looking. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I did not mean to say it that way, I just, (laughs) Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, in in normal circumstances, a high bride price, and just get used to this trading off daughters thing. It's not our culture. It's their culture. This is how it was. In normal circumstances, a high bride price would be closer to the equivalent of three years' wages. So when Jacob starts his bidding with an offer way, way too high according to the market, he reveals his entire hand to Laban. He's holding a solitary ace of hearts, and Laban's got a pair of queens. So Laban knows he's got Jacob by the ear. You thought I was gonna say nose. <laughs> <laughs> to grasp the significance of this scene, think back to Jacob and Esau's story. All right, so, so think of, of Rachel, of Jacob's just absolute infatuation. With Rachel. And now that should flash us back to Jacob and Esau's story. At the beginning of that story, Jacob knew that Esau's vulnerability was his hunger, his appetite. And so Jacob waited until just the right moment to take advantage of that vulnerability and get the birthright from Esau. Laban, Jacob's mirror, the law, is doing the same thing to Jacob. He knows now that Jacob's vulnerability is his infatuation with Rachel. So Laban makes a plan to exploit Jacob's weakness. Verse 19, Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, underhanded Laban is being a lawyer here. Notice he doesn't actually agree to Jacob's deal. Jacob offers seven years for Rachel, and and the -the in-between-the-lines offer is just Rachel, okay? Laban, being underhanded, he doesn't agree to that. He doesn't say, yes, serve me seven years, and I will give you my daughter Rachel for a wife, and then you can leave. He doesn't say that. He says, it's better that, that I give her to you than I should give her to the other man, right? That's all he says. In Jacob's naive love drunkenness, he foolishly assumes that's what Laban has agreed to. Like this is a good faith deal where we're, you're my uncle, I'm your nephew, we, we do things in good faith with one another. That's not what's happening. All Laban has agreed to is, yeah, it would be good if she were your wife. That's all he says. And then he says, stay with me. This isn't a contract for Rachel. This is a handshake with, with his fingers crossed behind his back. And Jacob falls for it. And he falls for it because of his infatuation. Now, I don't do this very much. Because normally, I focus on the cross. And and I think that's my calling. I think that's what we're supposed to do as pastors. But every now and again, I have to give you some advice. Just love advice, dating advice. (laughs) Since we all know what's about to happen to Jacob or most of us know. Let me give you a little bit of that relationship advice. A study out of the University College of London recently showed something that everyone has known for millennia. When you are newly dating someone or in Jacob's case courting someone, feelings of love and infatuation flood you with so much so much oxytocin and dopamine that the critical thinking area of your brain is drowned out. Can't think. No, there's no negotiations that you should be entering into. Tolstoy described it this way. When a man is in love like this, he mentally divides women into two classes. The first grouping is all the women in all the world who aren't the woman that you're in love with, and they have all the usual flaws and all the failings of humanity. And the second class of women is the one woman you are in love with, and she's perfect, and she's superior to all other humans. And Tolstoy's point Like that study in London, like all of human wisdom going all the way back to Genesis, the point is that there is such a thing as love blindness. That second class of perfection that you've invented in your mind is a myth. It doesn't exist. That person you are madly in love with is a flawed sinner like you. She's not perfect. And you're going to find that out really soon. There's a reason why we have sayings like fools rush in or head over heels, or punch drunk love. Those are all negative connotations, aren't they? And I'm sure that there are a million other ways of saying this in every human language that has ever been, because all humans are the same. We all get this way when we're infatuated with someone, and in a way that's good, isn't it? If it were not like this, we would spend all of our energy looking for someone, uh, someone's flaws, <laughs> because we would know that they're there, and we would find their flaws, because they are there. And, and sure enough, we would never get together with anyone, and human civilization would cease to exist. But, but listen, in the context of the church, you have older brothers and sisters who care for you, and you can see in your relationship what your Twitter-pated self can't see. So when you are in that first four months or so of a relationship, and you're still flying blind on all of that love blindness. And all the people around you are seeing flags all over the place. And they say to you, brother, this is not a good idea. You're about to get burned. Do yourself a favor and listen. Recognize that, that like Jacob, your brain has been in shutdown mode for four months and is only thinking about one thing there's no such thing as the one every guy every girl you meet is a flawed sinner all right but that doesn't mean to marry the first person who catches your eye so seek wise counsel jacob didn't have wise counsel around him but by god's grace you do so seek it and listen okay so that aside it's the end of my dating advice verse 20. so jacob served Seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just, in the text says it seemed to him. It does not say that it, that it was really just a few days. It was seven years. Jacob gets seven years of anticipation and hope, and Laban gets seven years of free labor, high-quality, make-a-man-rich kind of labor. And when the seven years have passed, Jacob shows more of his Esau-like weakness. Remember back to Jacob and Esau again. Think back to that scene when Jacob took the birthright. Remember that? Esau has has been hunting for a long time, and he's come back from the field empty-handed. He's absolutely starving. He thinks he's dying of hunger, and he unintelligibly stammers out to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. And the, the image in that story was of a man who was led by his stomach coming into the tent of sly Jacob, And we read that, and we knew Esau did not stand a chance against the trickster, and so he ends up giving away his birthright to the man who exploited his weakness. Same thing happens here when Jacob comes out of the field and approaches Laban. Only Jacob isn't led by his hunger for stew. He's led by his hunger for Rachel, and so he stammers out, in Troglodyte, verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go in to her for my time is completed. Oh, one more bit of advice for young men. This is not, <laughs> this is not how one asks for a woman's hand in marriage. from your soon-to-be father-in-law. Okay, this, this is Jacob's Esau-like appetite speaking. That's, that's the reason why this is recorded this, this way for us. Esau had said, give me some of that red stew so I can eat it. And and, and Jacob is saying similarly, give me that woman so I can have my way with her. And as it turns out, as we're reading this, we realize, oh, Jacob is not intellectually superior to Esau. He's actually just like Esau. And Jacob's mirror, Laban, is about to respond to this Vulnerability of Jacob's sin, his flesh. And in Laban's response, we see Laban even using more of Jacob's methods. Look at verse 22. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. So he asked for a wedding. Laban took it in stride. He's going to give him a wedding. Verse 23. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. That's more foreshadowing of next week. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. When when, when Jacob tricked Isaac, think back again, Jacob and Isaac. When Jacob tricked Isaac, Jacob was taking advantage of Isaac's blindness. So when he tricked Esau, he's taking advantage of Esau's blindness hunger. When he tricks Isaac, he's taking advantage of Isaac's blindness. Isaac was in the dark. He was well-fed, at least slightly intoxicated, and he was anticipating Esau's arrival in the tent at any moment, and that's when Jacob comes in with the switcheroo. Jacob suffers here in this scene. He suffers from a similar blindness because of the darkness. This happens after a feast. He's well-fed. He's probably drunk, and he's expecting Rachel. Do you see the similarities? And just as Isaac was deceived into communicating the blessing to Jacob and it could not be undone, so Jacob was deceived into consummating this marriage to Leah and it cannot be undone. Verse 25 continues, and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? What is this you have done to me? There are echoes here of God in the garden to the woman after she ate of the tree. What is this you have done? He says. And then the woman says, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So you've got what is this you have done? You've got deception. And then in the next chapter, the Lord says to Cain, What is this you have done? And then later on, Pharaoh says to Abraham, who had deceived him by pawning Sarah as his sister, What is this you have done? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? And then Abimelech to Abraham who had deceived him with the same sister fib. What is this you have done? And then Abimelech to Isaac after being tricked by the sister fib. What is this that you have done? Now it is the offspring of Abraham who has been deceived with, ironically, a twist on the classic sister fib. And now Jacob is the one asking Laban, what is this you have done? Do you see the the circle? The sins of Abraham are catching up with his son, his sons. That question, what is this you have done, is the Genesis response to the sinful actions of another person, and Jacob sees it now. He's the one who's been sinned against, and the devastating effects of another person's sin are now very real to Jacob in a way he hasn't experienced before. The question, as we're watching this happen to our, our big brother Jacob, the question as to whether he has realized his own sin. And to draw our attention further to that reality, verse 26 continues the lesson. Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Laban is twisting the knife, do you feel it? He's twisting the knife and letting Jacob feel the pain of his scorned older brother by making him take the scorned older sister He's feeling the pain of his own sin. This is the discipline of the Lord. This is a sanctifying reality. we read that in, 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 in uh, Romans 6, right? Once we have received the gospel, then when we see the discipline, receive the discipline of the Lord, it's sanctifying. This is meant to be sanctifying for Jacob. When, when you see that who you've been or what you've done is wicked, for Christians... That reality creates in us, by the Spirit, a godly remorse. And that godly remorse is meant to turn us back to Christ. It reveals in us that we are impure, and we are unclean, and we are sinful. And so we need purifying, and we need cleansing, and we need atonement. That's what God's discipline does for us. That's what the law does for us. It points us back to Jesus Christ. I don't think Jacob sees that yet. In fact, I think it's going to take a long time for Jacob to understand this. But for us, when, when we have these moments of clarity brought by the law of God, when you realize your own sin, man, don't waste that. When you realize by the mirror of God's law that you've been sinfully angry, or you've been lustful, or apathetic, or deceptive, or idolatrous, Repent and receive the atoning work of Christ, which already covers you, and live in the freedom of Christ. That's what the law is meant to do in us. And realize that when God does that for you, when He shows you your sin, as He's doing it to Jacob here, He's doing that out of love for you. The Father disciplines those He loves. Hebrews says God disciplines His sons so that we may share in His holiness. So at this point, with Jacob's sin shown to him, what Jacob should do is receive this discipline as from the Lord. He came for a wife. He has Leah. He came to give Esau time to cool down. It's been seven years. He's cool off by now. Maybe maybe things have not gone as Jacob imagined they would when he first saw that well, when he first saw Rachel. But it is what God has ordained for him. So the right response is for Jacob to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, through Laban's actions, you have shown me my own deceitfulness and my own selfishness. Because you have made me your son, I don't want to be who I was anymore. Help me. Shape me in your righteousness. Thank you for your grace toward me and providing for me a wife as you promised you would. Help me to love her as you have loved me. I trust you will lead me back to the land of promise and safety because you promised. Give me wisdom in dealing with Laban now. Amen. That's what Jacob should do. Humbly accept the discipline of the Lord who loves him and in wisdom acknowledge that his infatuation with Rachel got him into a lot of trouble. And so he should learn from that and he should move on. So, when we read uh, Laban's second offer in verse 27, all right, you want Rachel? Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. What Jacob should say to Laban is no thank you. Yahweh's design for marriage is one woman with one man. I know that polygamy originated with Cain's family, somewhere out here where you live, but I'm God's man. One wife is a blessing from the Lord, and that is enough for me. Let me go, or God's curse be on you. And we know that receiving Leah alone as his wife would have been the right move because, as it turns out, Leah is the carrier of the child of promise. Leah's fourth son, Judah, will be the one through whom the promise continues. From Judah will come Boaz and Jesse and David and Solomon, and down that line will come Mary and her son by the Spirit, Jesus. Leah is the wife of promise. She's the provision of the Lord for Jacob, but Jacob can't see it. Jacob is seeing with worldly eyes, he's seeing as man sees and not as God sees. So what does Jacob do? He doubles down on his obsession with Rachel, and he complies with the evil plan of Laban. And what we see unfolding here is a man who is literally enslaved to his passions. Verse 28, Jacob did so. And completed her week. That, what that means, that week, that means that Jacob completed the seven days of wedding feasting with Leah as his wife. That means they shared a tent and a bed together during that entire seven days. Jacob has agreed to receive Leah as his wife. And he's doing this also that he can get his, his heart's true love, Rachel. Then, verse 28 continues, Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Is that, that should break your heart. He loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now there's something that you need to realize about the air that you're breathing. It is romanticized. If you were born in America any time in the last 200 years, and I think that's most of you, and you haven't yet deconstructed the individualist romanticism that you've been trained in, that you've been drinking, you might see what Jacob has done and think. Jacob followed his heart. What's wrong with that? This is good. This was the right thing for Jacob to do. He loves Rachel he should marry her no matter the cost. Shame on Laban for forcing Jacob to marry both daughters in order for Jacob to get Rachel, but good on persistent Jacob for overcoming life's obstacles and capturing his heart's true love. And according to our romanticized ideals, surely this couple will live happily ever after. What could possibly go wrong? You need to understand that that impulse to see Jacob's desires for Rachel as virtuous, that is a product of the culture that you live in. You're thinking that way because of the influences of philosophy and art and literature and music beginning right around the middle 1700s. That's about the time that philosophers like Rousseau began to theorize that being authentic to yourself was the highest good. And then poetry and literature began to reflect these same ideas so that the inner self and the inner heart began to be seen as infallible. And what happens is the concept of truth slowly degenerated so that it became subjected to the life of the inner self. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then these three words might help. Follow your heart. You heard that before? Find your true love. Love. It dominates entertainment and movies and books. And we long ago began indoctrinating our children with this way of thinking. This is Disney's mantra, isn't it? Follow your heart. To the point where now this philosophy is so ubiquitous throughout our culture that it has justified cultural dogmas like gay marriage. Love is love. Follow your heart. If he loves him, he should marry him. If she loves her, she should marry her then who are we to stop them from marrying it's the greatest good to capture your heart's desire and it is the greatest evil to prevent such a conquest the subjective authority of the heart has eclipsed the universal authority of god's creation order and so it is so much that that's the case that we can't tell based on our own time and place And the way our minds have been trained to think, it's hard for us to recognize that Jacob's even sinning here when he marries two women, two sisters. We almost miss the entire point of the story because our culture has so idolized the self that we only see that Jacob was sinned against by Laban. But the scriptural point is that when Jacob takes this deadly bargain with Laban and receives a second wife and violates God's design for marriage, Jacob unnecessarily introduces a world of heartache and rivalry in what eventually will become the two divided kingdoms of the people of God. The story of the wickedness of the people of Israel named after Jacob, that history going all the way from Chapter 29, all the way down through the judges, into the age of the kings, the origins of Israel's hardships originated in Jacob's willful decision to marry two women. Two sisters, no less. And so to follow the way of the east, rather than the holy design of God. So it's with good reason that God, when he delivers the law to Moses... Same guy who wrote Genesis tells the Israelites in Leviticus 18, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive, something Jacob did over the course of eight days. Isn't that interesting? That God would tell a people like the nation of Israel, you are a people who were conceived in sin. You are a people whose very origins are unrighteous and ungodly and rebellious and against my holy design for you. That puts a, a, just a darker lens over already a dark story, doesn't it? But do you know why that God reveals Israel's history like this and then tells them your own history is evil? So that they would be humbled. The Israelites who received Leviticus were also the same people who first received Genesis from the Lord through Moses. This is meant to humble them. Again and again, Israel, the nation, just like Israel, the man, has got to be taught that it is not because of their greatness or their strength or their cunning or their intelligence. And it's certainly not their righteousness that God has chosen them. Israel's history is proof that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile alike. God has not chosen Israel because of their righteousness. Rather, He has chosen them because He's faithful to His promises and because He loves them. And God's love is not like Jacob's love. Jacob's love is fickle and worldly. Jacob does not love his own first wife, Leah, that God provided for him. What does he do? He uses her for his own pleasure and then sets her aside and goes after the sister. Don't say, oh, he was following his heart. He was, but it was wicked. And as we'll see next week, He's eventually going to become embittered toward Rachel as well. Beauty fades away. Jacob, the sinful shepherd, is ruled by his own sinful passions, and it brings destruction. But God's love is not like Jacob's love. God's love is perfect. His love is faithful. His love is eternal. When God, before the world began, set his love on his elect, there was nothing that could stand in the way. Not weak eyes, not a barren womb, not even sin as great as Jacob's. And we see God's love manifest in the person of Christ. We see the, the, the perfect love of God in Christ. In Christ, we see the perfect shepherd who's not ruled by his passions. He doesn't use his sheep, but he's driven by his love for the Father. And in love, he doesn't abuse the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. But here is the wonder of God's providence. Because to get from Jacob to Jesus, the promised son, we have to have Joseph, don't we? And that is the amazing thing about God's grace. Because through Jacob's imperfect love, through his sin, through his hatred of his own first wife and his infatuation with Rachel, eventually from Rachel will come Joseph, the suffering son whom God uses to save the entire family. And that, I believe, is where we see the fullness of the gospel in this story. Do you see it? These two truths that we confess, our worth and our unworthiness. We see the damage and destructive nature of our own sin. God is even yet working through it though, not in spite of our sin, but through our sin, through Jacob's sin and Leah's sin and Rachel's rivalry and even all the sins of the sons. God is working through it all because of his love toward Israel. Because of his mercy. And God is going to preserve for himself a people from this mess. And then through it all, he will bring the Messiah who saves them all. So, brothers and sisters, can we praise God? Let's praise God that he is greater than our sin. And let's praise God that his love is greater than our love. Let's pray.